0: It's probably not a surprise to you if you need to turn to Matthew chapter 5, if you have a Bible or a virtual one. Uh, we'll be looking at the Sermon on the Mount again in a few moments, but we're going to pray to the Lord one more time before we look at his word. Father, I thank you for grace. I thank you that every moment we live and we move, we can breathe in your grace and breathe out your praise. Uh, Father, it's of the Lord's mercies, of your mercies, that we are not consumed, the scriptures tell us. Uh, All of our righteousness are as filthy rags, your word says, but there is one whose righteousness we can partake in, and I pray this morning that as we look into your great sermon, that we will see that uh, as the righteousness that comes by faith. In Jesus' name, amen. We've been looking at, and you better be able to say the Beatitudes, and that would be correct. Uh, But one of the situations that happens when we look at Matthew 5 through 7 and all those chapters is that we're often used to looking at them in bits and pieces. So we see the Beatitudes and we think of them as a section. And then later on, we might read about salt and light and see that as a section, And then we read some of the other things that are listed there about anger, lust, and adultery. And we see them as almost isolated sayings. And what I'm hoping to do as we go from the introduction to the sermon into the body of the sermon to see that all of these things that Jesus is saying are part of one discourse. They have a unity. There's a reason. One relates to another. And some of them build on each other. So as we look at the Sermon on the Mount now, our our hope and prayer is is that we move from the introduction, which the Beatitudes and Salt and Light of last week are are a unit. Today we're going to look at how that plays out. What is the whole sermon about and what are we supposed to learn from it? Uh, We looked at last week the two big influences that we are to have is that we alone, are the salt of the earth, and that we alone are the light of the world. Uh, In living out all of those character traits that God creates in us when we get to be saved, we are to have an influence. And in essence, when we wake in the morning, you could legitimately say that the weight of the world is on our shoulders, Uh, that we are the ambassadors of the answers for the things that can heal a heart, that can bring meaning and purpose to an individual. And in all of those things, the the admonition there is if you're salt, and you are, you can't lose your taste. If you are light, and you are, you can't stop shining. You can't hide it in order to be effective. Uh, Salt loses its taste not by just sitting there. It's always going to be salt. But it's usually pollution or dilution that causes salt to lose its tastiness. For a light, it's hiding it having something to obscure it. And in those things, God says, you know what, let your light so shine before men that they might see your your deeds of compassion. Those practical things that you do every day that you live, and you may never get an accolade for it or anybody clapping for you, but you do them because of what you have been made in Christ. It's the right thing to do. And those actions give glory to God. It shines on him, Some will persecute you because of it. Others will embrace the message of Christ. And that's pretty much where the introduction takes us, and that in a Christian's character, you see it in the Beatitudes, the influence comes from the metaphors of salt and light. And the way of summing it up is that way of blessedness or happiness comes by living the Beatitudes. That is the way you are happy happy in life. Everybody in our world is pursuing happiness in some way or another. They have an idea in their mind what will bring joy and peace to them. Jesus is saying with all the authority of heaven and earth, this is the way. You want to be filled. You want to be complete. The Beatitudes entering into God's kingdom is the way to do that. And then secondly, it's the way we serve the world the best. If you want to do the highest good for the world around you, embrace Christ and his kingdom. Be salt and light. There is no other endeavor. There is no other uh, cause to be involved in than living righteously as a child of the kingdom to serve the world we're in. You hear people say often, you know, when I leave this earth, I hope I've left a mark. I hope I've done something. I leave it better than when I came. And that is noble. The best way to do it is through the kingdom of God and declaring his way. And finally, it is the way that God is most glorified. Uh, there are many pursuits and good things that we can do, but living a life to the glory of God is at the top of the list. It is the way that God gets glory in and of himself. So as we move from the conclusion to the, of the introduction, into the next part of the Sermon on the Mount. This is the phrase that we use just to kind of summarize where we've been. That the blessed children of the kingdom, it talks about who they are, how they are blessed of God, despised of men, and invaluable as salt and light. Now we're moving. Now if you look at those Beatitudes, and if you are all in touch with your own righteousness, you look at them and say, wow, wow. I have a long way to go. There are many of these things that are not as true of me as they could be, even though I see remnants of them, or I see them flourishing and growing, perhaps. So the question is going to come up, is how do I do this? How do I live as a child of the kingdom? Because it's one thing to know this is what I've been made, and this is what I'm called to be, and this is who I am. It's another thing to say, from what source do I pull? How do I make it happen? And how do I make it happen better today than I did last week or the week before? And this is what Jesus is going to say. And it it almost sounds a little abrupt as far as the change of what sounds like um, uh, subject matter. And it's like, well, how does that really fit with being salt and light? And the verse that we're going to look at, we're going to start with, say, do not think That I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. For truly I say to you, until heaven and earth pass away, not an iota, not a dot will pass away from the law until all is accomplished. And if you look at the flow, it's easy to think how does that fit? What, what? Where did the law all of a sudden come into all of this? And I think Jesus here is kind of peering into the, the thoughts and minds of what people are going to be thinking because of what he just said. He, he's brought some things into the program that weren't really center stage before. And he's saying something that sounds different. And in sounding different, all of a sudden the teachers of the law, the Pharisees and the Jews that might have been there, are hearing what he's saying, so there's a lot of things all of a sudden popping up in their mind. And they're thinking, something's not right here. He's different. He's new. And in doing that, Jesus does a couple things right away in these passages. The first one, as he's talking about the law, he he does something with authority. He changes the game plan a little bit. Because prior to this time, the authority of the day were the Pharisees and Sadducees. They were the religious rulers. If you needed to know anything about coming to God, you checked with them. They were supposed to know the way to God. So the authoritative part of Christ comes in when he says, for truly I say to you, that is a statement of specific authority. Uh, Some of your Bibles might say, amen, I say to you. And that word amen that we say all the time is something called a transliterated word from Hebrew. It means truth. So when we say amen, it's kind of like you take the Hebrew word and you just give English letters to it, you transliterate it over it, and that's why we say amen to something. True, true. And Jesus is saying, amen, truth is what I'm telling you. So to say that is quite an authoritative statement. I doubt any of us are going to get up on our own merits today and say, I have truth. In fact, I am truth. Uh, anything I say carries weight. We might say, no, let me just quote Jesus. Let me quote the Bible. That is truth. Now, you'll find people all around the world today that will claim truth. They will claim to know the way. But as Jesus is giving the thesis to his sermon, he's telling them truly Amen. Truth is what I am speaking. Even though the religious rulers are standing right there, they're listening and they're they're able to hear this. Jesus is kind of saying something new is happening here, and I'm going to explain what I am doing and how it relates to the kingdom of God. So not only is it authoritative, it seems that Jesus is describing some kind of new people that are... Coming on the scene through these Beatitudes. They don't see, it doesn't seem to be the description of all those things that they've learned in all of their history, of, uh, of all the way from Moses and the law up until today, had a certain type of people. Jesus is coming and he's raising the bar. He's changing to w- the way to look at the kingdom of God and actually clarifying for them how you even get into the kingdom of God. So, so the question that comes up is, how do you understand this group of people that Jesus has just talked about? How do they fit in with everything I've ever learned, everything that I have ever known? And you can take it one step further, the question of continuity for the people of Israel. This is Jesus. He's coming along. He has ne- never been trained under a rabbi. He doesn't have any of the credentials that that the Pharisees and Sadducees have, where is this authority coming from? How can he declare all of this? And how does it square with everything in the law and the prophets? Is he better than them? Has he come to destroy the law and make a whole new religion? So there's a ton of questions going through the minds of the people that are there. And in doing all of this, Jesus is using these four verses to talk about a thesis statement for everything else that's going to follow, and also explain how you tap into or how the Beatitudes can be true of a person. So Jesus is basically going to give them the, the, the thesis to his whole public ministry is going to be, are going to be contained in these couple verses. Jesus is essentially saying, look, if you thought the law was given to produce righteousness, wait till you see what I'm going to do. Wait till you see how I am coming to the table and what I am bringing in relation to the law. I'm not coming to get rid of it. I'm not coming to say, you know what, the law, that's just past. That's no good. Things of the past aren't important. Just forget about that. Just pay attention to me now. Jesus isn't coming to say that. He's saying, I am coming to highlight the law in a way that it's never been highlighted before. I am coming to bring the law to you in a way that could have never happened prior to his coming. They had wondered about his teaching. They wondered about his authority and how it relates to everything they have known their whole life. Um, those of you that, like, kind of get stuck in your ways as you get older, you ever been accused of that? You know, you just kind of get, you like the same thing to happen. If somebody came along and all of a sudden said, you know, everything that you've believed or thought your whole life uh, needs to change today, you're going to need some good reasoning to figure that out. So, oh, really? Why? Why am I not fully correct? Or why do I need to change? Because change is threatening. Change is difficult, and Jesus is bringing a kind of righteousness to this world that this world has not yet understood, that this world doesn't fully get. So Jesus is going to answer all of these questions that are going on in the crowd around him, and we're going to look at three principles and three possible relationships that we could have to the law. Uh, Because there's a whole big Old Testament that was written that comes before this, what's happening here. And is Jesus saying, you know what, forget it all, just listen to me now. Or is he saying there's a special relationship, a continuity from everything from Moses till now, and it's taking on new meaning. It's going to be special. It's going to be lifted up front and center stage unlike anything else ever has. So principle number one that Jesus is going to tell them is that this new way is in complete harmony with the law. That's principle number one. The perception that those around him had is that that he was going to destroy the law. That was the perception. And Jesus is coming saying, I'm not coming to abolish or to destroy the law in any fashion whatsoever. And that perception is that. That's what he was all about. He was going to tear down everything that the Pharisees and scribes had built up. He was a troublemaker. And through his whole life, they pursued him as a troublemaker because his message was so different than what they had been embracing. Destroy here means to loosen down as you would take a tent down when you're finished with it, to dissolve something. And as they looked at Jesus, they said, you are coming to tear down the building that we have built. All of the glitz and glamour and all the way that they were honored. Jesus is coming to say, you guys have it wrong. You are not following the kingdom of God and his principles. And as they looked at Jesus, and the same thing happens to people today. Do you ever meet anybody that just wants to throw the Bible out, destroy it? It has no relevance. It means nothing. Those laws are antiquated. We don't need to follow them today. In fact, morality is really whatever makes you happy. And if anybody doesn't want your happiness and disagrees with you, then you are hated. You know, they hate you. Uh, that, that's the destroying of the law. And they thought, Jesus, you're coming to tear down everything that has been built. And as they looked at them, they, he looked at them in a couple ways, that his authority was one way he was coming to tear down the law. Uh, He didn't come from any recognized school of leadership. Uh, He didn't have any degree behind his name. And, And instead, teaching, instead of teaching from authority, which the scribes and Pharisees did, Jesus taught with authority. And there's a big difference, and they're not used to handling that. He comes along, and he's not quoting others. He's not going on a big tradition, oral tradition, that the the scribes and Pharisees would have embraced and espoused. He comes along, and he is the authority. So even by doing that, they're thinking he's trying to tear down everything that's going on. And not only that, they thought his activities, the things that he's doing are coming to destroy everything we know to be true about God. He seemed to defy the law. He would heal on the Sabbath. He would do things that didn't seem to fit their little mold about what righteousness should look like, his activities. He paid no attention to some of their traditions that they said you must do if you want to be right before God. And then, to make matters worse, Jesus, in his associations, he was a friend of publicans and sinners. He went places that a good Jewish Pharisee or scribe never would go. He associated with people. So in in just these three actions or activities or spheres, it seems like Jesus is going against everything. Is is he starting a new religion? Is he trying to establish himself uh, as, as the person and tear down everything that has come before? But, you know, reality is that the Pharisees were the ones destroying the law. They had tradition that robbed the people of the pure word of God. Their hypocritical lives, they disobeyed the very law they came to, that they um, claimed to be protecting. And we're going to see that after we get through this thesis statement that Jesus makes, he's going to go through six areas of the law And he's going to show to them that the way the Pharisees and the way they've been taught to use the law is not how the law was ever meant to be used. And we're going to look at those as we expand this thesis statement that Jesus is making. But as he comes, Jesus made it clear. He came to honor the law, help God's people love it, learn it, and live it. He wasn't coming to throw it away and say that it doesn't have any bearing anymore. You see, the Pharisees had a righteousness that was kind of like a a mask. It was like a masquerade. They wore it on the outside. Jesus is coming to tell them, if you want to live as a child of the kingdom, there's going to be a different kind of righteousness coming. There's going to be a righteousness of heart that goes beyond just the outside. It won't be a dead ritual where you go through the motions, but he's going to introduce to them a living relationship, that there's a way to have a heart in connection with God. He's going to take it from artificial to real, a life-giving righteousness, that I can actually help change the life of another person. The scriptures tell us in Colossians, Therefore, let no one pass judgment on you in question of food and drink or with regard to a festival or a new moon or a Sabbath. These are a shadow of things to come, but the substance is Christ. What he's going to introduce and unfold to the people listening is a way of looking at the law, not as an end in and of itself, that the law wasn't ever given for you to try to obey, and by obeying it, God likes you, and that somehow you've created an acceptance with him. In fact, the law was just a shadow. The substance, Jesus is saying, is, it's him. He is the one who came to fulfill the law. Literally, that word fulfill means to fill it full so that all of the shadows of all of the scripture pointed to him. Now, if you've ever, anybody like love reading Leviticus, you find that just to be so heartwarming, and and, okay, Tom Dakin, I figured that. But as you look at these things, and, and, and they're listed there, you're like, what in the world is that talking about? There's a feast, there's a sacrifice, there's a dietary law. All of those things sometimes make us cloud over. But all of those, in some fashion point forward. They're they're pointers, and they're pointing to a person or a complete fulfillment by an individual of the righteous demands of the law that not one of us could ever keep. The same way we look at the Beatitudes and say, that's like perfection. So was the law. So what it was, in all of its types and all of its shadows, it's pointing forward, and Jesus is saying, guess where it's all pointing? Look at me. I have come to fill it full, so that every prophecy ever prophesied, every sacrifice ever given, any holy day, any feast, you put them all together, they're saying one thing, and they're saying that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of the living God, and he is the one who is fulfilling all righteousness because of his obedience to the law. So in our relationship to the law, uh, this new way is still in harmony with it. The other way, we, can, we could seek to fulfill the law on our own. Any of you ever, like as you were younger, set out to be perfect in your life? Some of us, if you know your heart well, you never got on that bandwagon. <laughs> this is no way. I, I know who I am. I know that I'm not perfect. But I know there's many times that, that I had this idea that my obedience to something, to the word of God, somehow could coerce God or make him like me better. And that the person who was the goody two-shoes Christian somehow was on a different spiritual level than those of us that are already in touch with how messed up we were. And, and I would pray things like, you know, I'd lost my gloves all the time, could never find my gloves. And I would get in so much trouble. And I'd have to buy new gloves. And I, you know, and I didn't have any money. you know, so I, It was just horrible. And I remember losing my glove. I would get a panic attack because I knew what my parents would say. And I'd be praying something like, Lord, if you help me find my glove, I will never sin again. I prayed that because I believed that somehow my righteousness had an effect on what God would do for me. And it was like a bargaining chip. So I was seeking in some way to fulfill the law as feebly as I could, thinking that somehow my goodness made a difference in my standing with God. And that's true of people everywhere. And and I know there's a lot of people listening virtually that that I don't maybe even know who you are, and I may never have met you. And, And the question that I'm asking everybody here or wherever you are, what righteousness are you depending on in your standing before the Lord? If he were to say to you right now, you all of a sudden checked out of this world. I'm not going to say that you died. That just sounds morbid. Just all of a sudden you beamed up to heaven and you were there. And he said, oh, you're here early. Why should I let you in? What is it about you that entitles you to my kingdom? If our answer ever has anything to do with anything that we have done with any goodness that we have, we are trying to fulfill the law. we are depending on our own righteousness that there's something good about me because I, you know and I look at my neighbor i 'm better than they are, and I could look at half of mancelona i 'm better than they are. Some of you might even venture to say two- thirds of Mansalona. Whatever you would say. And, and you would say, you know what? I, I give some money to church. I help people. I do this. The Bible says all our righteousness are as filthy rags. There isn't anything in myself that could ever endear me to God, that could bre- close the gap. And, and, and Jesus is telling them there and explaining to them that there is a righteousness required in order to be part of his kingdom. But that righteousness does not come from you, Pharisees. It does not come from you, scribes, and it doesn't come from any pathway person or any person anywhere. The righteousness that has to come, becomes comes through perfect fulfillment of the law. We could seek to try to fulfill it. Jesus did it in his life. Galatians 4, 4 through 5, we read these words. But when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law, so that we might receive adoption as sons. That literally means placed as sons and daughters into God's family. So Jesus, as he entered this world, came under the law, just like we are. The requirement of the law, 100% perfection. Jesus came under the law because as we are under it and can't fulfill it, Jesus came to do that for us and on our behalf. In his life, in his teaching, Jesus had a very high view of the scripture a high view of the law and the prophets. And in his ministry, he wanted to peel away all the man-made traditions that they had heaped upon the word of God, all the ways that they had misunderstood it, misinterpreted it. He wanted to break away that thick crust of religion that, and, and bring people back to God's word. You see, religion in its purest sense is man's attempt to bind himself back to God. And that's what religion means, a reconnection. And and Jesus is saying, this isn't religion. This isn't about your attempt at righteousness. This is at my successful invasion into your world to bring you a righteousness that you could never ever produce on your own. In his teaching, in his death, and in his resurrection, he fulfilled the law completely. He fulfilled all of the types in the Old Testament. All those pictures that sometimes confuse us were all there to, in some fashion, point to him. If you want to read Hebrews chapters 9 through 10, it gives you a a picture of how Jesus filled full all of those types that pointed to him. In his death and resurrection, he bore the curse of the law. It says in Galatians 3.13, Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law. Oh, Wait a minute. I don't think I have that one up there. He redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. For it is written, cursed is everyone who is hung on a tree. Jesus came to bear the curse of the law. He filled it completely in his life. He filled it completely by taking the curse upon himself in our place. My, brothers and sister, my brother and sister, as I was growing up, I believe loved me, sort of. But I don't ever remember them taking my punishment. I don't remember that happening. In fact, I remember them more often trying to get their punishment on me and getting me to confess as the little one uh, what goes on. And I could tell you a lot of stories, and if you've had brothers and sisters and you're the youngest, you know how it goes. Uh, It's just not common to take the punishment of somebody else and to take it in their place completely, but that's what Jesus did. In Galatians 2.21, the scriptures say, I do not nullify the grace of God. For if righteousness were through the law, then Christ would have died for no purpose. He came and he died, fulfilled the law, took the curse, and in it he fulfilled all righteousness in us. And this is the whole point of the Sermon on the Mount now, is that this righteousness fulfillment that Jesus has done, when we by faith come to him, that gets put in us. That is the truth of Christianity. That is why Christianity is a relationship and not a religion, because God says, I am fulfilling it in you, so that your standing before God is not who you are. It's who Jesus is and what he has done in fulfilling the law. As we look in Romans chapter 8, and you should have this in your notes, and I'm gonna read a couple of verses before what's on the screen. It says, "Therefore, there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. For the law of the spirit of life has set you free in Christ Jesus from the law of sin and death. For God has done what the law, weakened by the flesh, could not do. By sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh, And for sin, he condemned sin in the flesh in order that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us who walk not according to the flesh, but according to the spirit. The essence of the gospel, the essence of how a person can live the Beatitudes is to have the righteousness of Christ charged to their account put into their very heart. If you get that and you understand that, that then becomes the dynamic that you live from. In Galatians 2.20, it says, not I, but Christ. And this body, that, this life that I live in, this body right now, I'm not the one living in anymore. There's a new dynamic in my heart. There's a new capacity, a new righteousness in me. Uh, principle number two is that this new way is in complete disharmony with the Pharisees. And you could say with most any religion anywhere. This didn't jive with them. This isn't going to be popular with them. Jesus is basically saying, and, and maybe you've criticized somebody before. Have you ever said to somebody, you know, it's not all about you? And, and, and they're just so into themselves Jesus is stepping up to the plate, and in his sermon, he's saying, by the way, it is all about me. It is about me from beginning to end. I am the one who came under the law. I took the curse of the law. I am the one that you must give your heart to. There is not salvation to be found under any other name. It comes through Christ and Christ alone. And this is not what they were thinking about in any way, shape, or form. And in this principle, when we see that the kind of um, life that the Pharisees lived was all external, it was all about their own righteousness. And we read these words that Jesus says Therefore, whoever relaxes one of these least uh, of the least of these commandments and teaches others to do the same will be called least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever does them and teaches them will be called great in the kingdom of heaven." The Pharisees, um, they were relaxing the law. They were relaxing God's commandments. They were doing other things to them as well that we're gonna see in the coming weeks. But basically they were saying, okay, this is what the scripture says, but this is what God meant by that. And this is what he really thinks about it. And they would add a whole list of traditions and things that they believed God really wanted and elevated them to the place of Scripture. Uh, All kinds of extra commands about what you tithe and how you tithe it and what you do on the Sabbath and what is considered work and what's not considered work. And it was a difficult situation because they would relax certain things and elevate other things that were never ever part of the word of God and created a legalism that no one could ever follow because they themselves could not even follow. And Jesus says, you know, I'm the one that fulfills the law. And anyone else who somehow lowers the standard so that they can get in, they're going to be the least in the kingdom of heaven. It doesn't work. That's not how his kingdom program is supposed to unravel. A call for a high view of scripture, its authority, and for personal sincerity on the person who would claim to be part of the kingdom of God. Jesus said in Matthew 23, 1 through 3 about the Pharisees, he said to the crowds and to the disciples, the scribes and the Pharisees, they sit on Moses' seat, basically they sit at his feet and teach, so do and observe whatever they tell you but not the works that they do, for they preach, but do not practice. Now, that's not a cool thing to say to the religious leaders with all the power and authority of the day, to completely pull the rug out from under them and saying, okay, they might listen to you because you might have some good things to say as long as they're connected to the law and Moses, but they shouldn't follow a thing that you do because what you do is a kind of self-righteousness. And those woes were given to the scribes and Pharisees in Matthew 23. So principle number two, the new way is in complete disharmony with self-righteousness or the Pharisees. Principle three is this new way rests on a completely different kind of righteousness, a completely different kind. We read in verse 20, For I tell you, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. This had to be a mind-blowing statement to the people that are there. The Pharisees and the scribes were considered to be just about perfect. They were righteous all the time in every way. They were admired. They were respected. Their opinion mattered, and what they said carried the day. And Jesus is saying, if you want to talk about their kind of righteousness, you have to exceed them. And that word exceed just doesn't mean beat them by a little bit. If you have a horse race and and one of the horses just nudges the other one out, you say they won by a nose. That's not what Jesus is saying here. If you're going to depend on your own goodness, the righteousness that you have needs to overflow like a river out of its banks it needs to be so much that it's just completely covering everything and there's actually two words in greek for that one word that's translated exceed because after he says overflowing out of its banks there's another word that means and greatly and greatly more than that much more than that that would smack the pharisees for one thing because their righteousness wasn't enough it would completely discourage everybody else It's like not just meet their righteousness. I have to exceed it like a river flows out of its banks. And then another time on top of that, who could be saved? Who could ever come to God on their own merits? And the big difference here is the kind of righteousness that Jesus is bringing is different in kind, not in degree. Okay, it's a different kind. If I was going to compare the exact same kind of righteousness the Pharisees had, I got to be like a river overflowing, and then much more. But if I can get a different kind of righteousness, a completely pure righteousness, then I can get myself into the kingdom of heaven. The scribes and the Pharisees had boiled down everything in the Old Testament down to two hundred. And forty-eight commands, 365 prohibitions. That's how they wanted to, like, they wrote them all down. These are the things you do. These are the things you don't do. If you get it, you're righteous. If you don't, you are not righteous. Jesus said, you know what? No, scratch, forget it. I fulfilled the righteousness demands of God on your behalf. The children of the kingdom embrace that. They give their whole heart to it. And Jesus said, all that righteousness that I just did, it's going to be fulfilled in you. So that as you are viewed by God, God the Father, you are as righteous as Jesus Christ. We stand on his merits. Like the hymn that that, that sung often says, nothing in my hand I bring, simply to the cross I cling. The righteousness that comes in Christ. This Um, pursuit of self-righteousness has always been a mark in our world, whether it's part of Judaism or some other religion or just people in general. They'll say, you know, when I get to heaven someday, I'm sure my good will outweigh my bad and God will let me in. And they just believe that somehow their goodness is going to cut it before the Lord. This external focus is, is so prevalent in our world around us. I think it was in 1992, it was in Israel. uh, There was a fire on a Sunday in a particular apartment. And the, the strict people, the strict followers of Judaism were like, what do we do? We can't work on Sunday. And picking up the telephone and breaking an electrical current has been determined to be work on Sunday. So they didn't call anybody about the fire. They called the rabbi, saying, rabbi, what do we do if we? And I don't know how you actually called the rabbi. I guess they went to the rabbi, I should say. They didn't call him. They got got the rabbi. It took them half an hour to get an answer from the rabbi that it would be okay to call in the fire. And by that time, two more buildings had been consumed by the fire. You see, that's our propensity to self-righteousness. And it's not just something that happens in Judaism, it happens in religions all over the place. Man-made ideas about what God wants and what's right before him, and God says, you guys have it so wrong. You don't get it. Your righteousness are as filthy rags. It is only the cross of Christ and his righteousness that changes us. That's what Jesus brings out in the Sermon on the Mount. You want to live like a child of the kingdom? Understand, I fulfilled the whole law. I'm here to tell you right as I begin my sermon, not me, him. As as he begins his sermon, he's saying it's all about me. And it's all about what I've done for you. And it's up to you to make the decision to bring it into your heart. And this is the crux of the kingdom of God because the whole rest of this chapter and this part of the sermon is going to be about the law of God written on the heart of a person and what it means. What does it look like when God writes his law and fulfills his righteousness inside of you? Philippians chapter three, Paul describes the difference between these two kinds of righteousness. I don't think you have, I don't have a slide for that but it should be in your notes or at least part of the verse. He says, as as to zeal, I was a persecutor of the church. As to righteousness, under the law, blameless. In other words, from a human perspective, you couldn't find any way he wasn't keeping the law. But whatever I had gained or whatever I had attained, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ my Lord. For his sake, I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish. That translation makes it pretty nice. It's really dung, and I don't even need to explain that. In order that I may gain Christ and be found in him. Paul? Blameless you could not find a way in his life that he was not fulfilling the law in Paul's life as you looked at him. He said, that self-righteousness, I counted as filthy rubbish from the dunghill. Not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God that depends on faith. If you're with us virtually, you're here today. What righteousness do you base your eternal security on? How are you going to ever stand before a holy God? Because of what you've done? Because of what he's done. The whole point of the cross, it's called the substitutionary atonement of Jesus Christ. In our place, took our punishment upon himself. It's a deeper righteousness, a righteousness of heart that takes into account what you think. It takes into account your motives and not just your external actions. The beauty of this kind of righteousness was kind of hinted at in the Old Testament. They knew that somebody was coming to fulfill the law in a special way. Jeremiah, it was kind of hinted at when it it says in Jeremiah 31, for this is the covenant or the promise I will make with the house of Israel after those days declares the Lord. I will put my law within them and I will write it on their hearts and I will be their God and they shall be my people. In Ezekiel, he kind of hinted to him how this this new way was going to transpire. And in Ezekiel 36, 27, he says to Ezekiel, I will put my spirit within you, and cause you to walk in my statutes and be careful to obey my rules. Jesus, through the Old Testament, his fulfillment of it in the New Testament, was saying, I am coming to fulfill the law for you because you can. And I am coming by the power of the Holy Spirit to write it right inside of you so that you are able then to fulfill all that I have. If I were to tell you this morning, I have a brick for you. In fact, I have a whole pallet of bricks that I want to give you. Some of you might be excited because you want a fire pit. Some of you could care less. You wouldn't want them around. But if the brick looked a little more like the ones here, you might be excited. You see, a brick isn't always a brick. And righteousness is not always the same. Jesus came to bring his righteousness, not a pile of bricks. Our righteousness is just a bag of blocks, nothing before a holy God. If we are to live as children of the kingdom, it needs to be burnt within our hearts that Jesus lives in us. His righteousness has been credited to us. He lives in me. Everything else in the rest of the Sermon on the Mount, Uh, presupposes the understanding of that because none of it could ever happen unless I come to a place where I trust in the righteous sacrifice of Christ and not my own works, and then I'm not clinging somehow thinking I will be good enough or I will do enough to enter into the kingdom of God. Jesus offers salvation, an entrance into his kingdom based upon who he is, what he's done, and what he can do in our hearts. As we look at the rest, and I hope you can read Matthew chapter 5, keep reading through there, and see the next six categories. And basically what they're going to be are, Jesus is saying when the law gets written in your heart and my spirit lives in you, this is what the fulfilled law ought to look like. And he's going to contrast that in, in a big way to the way the Pharisees had been approaching the law. May our church, may the church of Jesus Christ, truly understand the righteousness that we have in Christ, and that that is the place that we live from. That is the place that we draw from. Anytime we draw from the flesh, we will fail. But when we live in step with the Spirit, God will fulfill his plan in our hearts. And that's when the kingdom goes out. That's when people see the difference because they're not seeing us. They're seeing a righteousness that comes from Christ and Christ alone. Father, I thank you that you have given us all things that pertain to life and godliness. And that is only true because your spirit lives in us. Lord, I invite anybody listening today, wherever they may be, if, if they in any way, Father, are are trusting in themselves that they've never come to a place to give their heart to you and to take what that righteousness that you have, Father, burn in their hearts today. Keep their heart burning until they come to a place where they bow their knee and accept that gift that you have. Lord, we love you. May we be on fire because of what Jesus, what you have done within us. Lord, may you help us to understand that that beautiful truth that that you live in us, that your righteous character has been given to us. Lord, we love you. Help us to um, just embrace these things and to have them uh, completely um, captivate our mind, our imagination, our thoughts, so that as we wake every morning, Lord, we understand what you have made us and what you have called us to be. In Jesus' name, amen.